You will see our scripture passage for this afternoon. You're welcome to turn uh, in the Bible if you have one with you as well to that text. Philippians 1, 27 through 30. All right, as you're turning there and getting situated with that passage, um, what should the Christian life look like? What should the Christian life look like? If you're here and you consider yourself a believer, follower of Jesus, um, is the life that you're living um, the life that's expected as a follower of Christ? I wonder how you'd answer that question. Sometimes we think, um, no, I should be way better. I feel like I struggle all the time and I'm always messing up and my life is super inconsistent. And in my expectation, my vision for the Christian life is that it would, I would be way better. I'd be way more victorious. I would struggle less. Um, or maybe you just think, you know, I just thought it'd be a lot easier than this. Living as a Christian is just really difficult. And I expected it to be easier. Or maybe um, you're not sure what the Christian life is supposed to look like. Um, And so maybe it feels like others have figured it out. You still haven't. You have all these questions and it just feels sort of cloudy to you. Our passage this afternoon gives us a picture of the Christian life. Um, And wherever you find yourself today, this is going to give you a path forward with more clear expectations of what we can expect in the Christian life. So Paul is writing uh, to the Philippians from prison, and his theme that he goes back to again and again is that they can find joy in Jesus no matter what they're facing. And he's going to touch on that again today. And he just told them in our last passage that whether in living or in dying, if Jesus is your main thing, you're going to be okay. All right, and now he's going to give them in these four verses what to expect in the Christian life. All right, this is Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The word of the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your word to us. And um, unless you speak to us by your Holy Spirit during this time and and, uh, illuminate our hearts and our minds and our eyes to this word, then we can't know you and we want to know you. So, Holy Spirit, would you help us during this time? And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, I can remember um, spring semester of my last year of college, uh, me and all my friends were applying for jobs. A few friends were getting ready for grad school, most of us. We're looking for jobs, and it, this was like, um, think about like monster.com where you click the entry-level job box and you sort of see what fills the page. Like, that's kind of where we were living. Nothing too crazy. We just wanted to be done with school and have a job that, you know, maybe came close to paying the bills. 
And so n- no real grandiose expectations for these entry-level jobs, uh, except for my friend AJ. Uh, my friend AJ was applying to work for the Secret Service. Um, the Secret Service, if you're not familiar, uh, it's a federal law enforcement agency that protects like the highest elected leaders, like the president. Think uh, black suits, black sunglasses, earpieces. Uh, you see them in movies a lot. Um, okay, so when... AJ starts talking about this potential job. Again, I'm like applying for an entry-level position at the place just down the street. Not nearly as exciting. So he starts talking about the Secret Service. I'm like, this is going to be awesome. AJ's going to be in the Secret Service. And I'm thinking through all the movies I've seen. And I imagine AJ in this really exciting, glamorous, like action-packed Secret Service job where AJ has the black suit. AJ has the earpiece, the glasses. He's talking into his wrist. And of course, he's running by the limo. Because that's like the ultimate move as a Secret Service agent to be running by the limo. Um, And so he starts this whole process of applying and interviewing. And it was so long and so thorough. Um, There was actually a point where where this like very mysterious person called me and wanted to know all about AJ's personal life during college. And I said, do you really want to know all about AJ's personal life during college? He said, yes. And so I told him everything that I knew about AJ, but it was a super thorough process and he ends up getting hired. And so they send him away for training and he moves to D.C. and it's just building and building and building to this epic Secret Service job. AJ starts his job with the Secret Service. The reality of his entry level Secret Service job was that it was incredibly boring, incredibly boring. (laughs) Uh, He was stationed initially um, as a security guard outside the White House, which, again, to me, sounded awesome. I was like, AJ, what do you do? Tell me about this. He's like, well, I basically just stand outside all day, and it's really boring. He said, sometimes there's like a crazy tourist that wants to go talk to the president. I have to tell them they can't do that and send them away, but that's about as exciting as it gets. Um, All of his college buddies, we had all envisioned the life of a Secret Service agent to be one way. But the reality was far different. How do you envision the Christian life? And how does that line up with your day-to-day reality? Paul tells the Philippians in verse 27, he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So the question that this brings up is, what does a life worthy of the gospel of Christ look like? Um, How can we get a more realistic vision for our lives? Three things I want to say this afternoon. The Christian life is more unity than division. It's more confidence than fear. And it's more suffering than comfort. First, the Christian life is more unity than division. Look at verse 27 again. Paul says to the Philippians, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent... I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Okay, so again, the context, Paul is not sure if he's going to get out of prison to see them again. But what he says to them, he says, okay, Philippian church, whether I get to see you again or not, here's what I want to hear about you. Here's what I want people saying about you, Um, that you are standing firm in one spirit, he says. And that with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. 
He wants them to be united as a church. And we've talked about their division before. We don't know the exact source of their division or conflict. He's going to talk about that later in chapter 4. But he wants them to be united. And this sounds like a great suggestion, right? Don't be divided. Be united. Great. Yes. Okay. But this is so difficult. Theoretically, it's easy. We all want it. Check the box. Realistically, it's super hard to stay united with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Think about the past two to three years. Presidential election. National conversations about race. Responses to COVID. Think about those issues. Do you know what happened to local churches across our country around these three issues over the last two years? Massive division. Massive division between brothers and sisters in Christ, the family of God, because of differing views on politics, race, and COVID. So local churches all across the country became divided and polarized in ways that we've literally never seen before. It's so significant that there are like people studying this right now. There are entire podcasts dedicated to how do you lead in polarized times? And it's not just for churches. It's all kinds of organizations. You may have felt this in organizations outside the church you're connected with. But these things ripped through local churches. We are so divided and so polarized. And the fact that Paul's addressing it in this letter means it's not just about those issues that I just mentioned. It's the condition of our hearts. Um, Our hearts are ripe for division and polarization. Um, If we were created to love God and love our neighbor, what is sin going to do? Make us not want to love God and not be good at loving our neighbor. And so enter division and disunity. The pump is primed. And then on top of that, that our hearts are, are just ready for division ready for disunity, even in the midst of the church. Think about the primary input in your life that you carry around with you all the time. Think about the primary input, your phone and your social media feed. Our phones, this is like a little uh, formation machine, always forming us, always shaping us, always shaping what we believe and how we think and how we respond Um, Think about your social media feed, your news inputs. You could go through each of those categories, your phone, your social media, your news inputs, and think, okay, in what ways is this leading me to greater uh, unity with God's people? In what ways is this driving me to greater disunity with God's people? How is this helping you love God and neighbor? How is it hurting your love for God and love for neighbor? Bringing you closer together, further apart. I'm not anti-phone, by the way. Just a question. There was a study done um, to apply this to the world that I'm in of being a pastor. There was a study done on how pastors can thrive in ministry for the long haul. This was a massive, massive study by the Lilly Endowment where they spent $84 million, $84 million over 10 years. And they studied pastors from over 63 different denominations. So it was, it was a very... Um, Very legit research project. $84 million, 10 years, 63 different denominations. 
And the question they were studying is, what, um, what is the thing or things that will help pastors stay healthy pastors, pastors for the long haul in ministry? What will keep them from burning out or making big mistakes and make them lose their jobs or things like that? All kinds of research that went into it. All right. Do you know what the number one indicator that they found as to whether or not a pastor will make it for the long haul? It's whether or not a pastor has authentic friendships and peer groups with other followers of Christ. $84 million of research showed that pastors need close, united friendships with brothers and sisters in Christ. The research showed that they cannot stay healthy on their own. Why? Because none of us can. We weren't made to. It's not just pastors. It's a human condition. What did God say to Adam before he made Eve? It is not good that man should be alone. God created us for unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, About a year and a half ago, a friend called me and a few others to help him move a piano. I don't know if you've ever tried moving a piano before. Um, There was... um, no way that one of us could have moved the piano. It took five of us, and we were sort of able to move the piano, but it was still really, really difficult. There's no way one of us could have done it alone. But together, it became a possibility. Um, Paul is telling the Philippian church to push through their, their, their divisions and to stay united with one another, with their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, And that they will actually be stronger together if they do that. All right, so to press in on this temptation toward division even more, I want you to think about your own life. For you personally, what will be the issue that you're going to be tempted to divide over? And then with that issue in particular, what will it look like for you to lean into that And to push through it to stay united with your brothers and sisters. Um, One very practical thing that we've put in place at Resurrection to help with this are our neighborhood groups. Um, It's amazing what happens week after week when you're sharing a meal with people and praying together, sharing prayer requests. You're laughing together. You're crying together. You're serving somewhere together. You're discussing the, the sermon together. When you do that week after week... You begin to build real friendships and real unity with people, even who have maybe very different views than you do. But you have to be in relationship with them. That's why things like neighborhood groups exist. What can we expect in the Christian life? Temptations toward division and isolation, but a call towards unity with one another. So the Christian life is more unity than division is the first thing that Paul says. Secondly, The Christian life is more confidence than fear. It's more confidence than fear. So after he tells them in verse 27 that they're stronger together, that they need to remain united, he says in verse 28 to not be, quote, frightened in anything by your opponents. So the Philippians had opponents. And these are different than the opponents that Paul had who were trying to afflict him in prison. Remember we said those were actually believers, just with bad motives. These opponents he's talking about in our passage today are not believers in Jesus. There are people who are hostile to the faith that the Philippians have. They're opposed to the good news of Jesus. 
And it was threatening to the Philippians. They felt threatened by it. So Paul thought that he needed to speak into it and address it. And he says to them, don't be scared of them. Don't be scared of them. Be confident. Why? Second half of verse 28. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. All right, think about being into, in the position of the Philippians where there, were, there was actual, real, uh, maybe even physical opposition to your faith in Jesus. Um, they were, they were um, threatening you, threatening to persecute you. Um, very real threats. Um, don't talk about Jesus or we're going to throw you in jail. Don't talk about Jesus or we're going to physically hurt you, maybe even kill you. Maybe in a different scenario, don't talk about Jesus. You're going to lose your income, your, your, the way you make money. These opponents have, they have actual, uh, real, painful, immediate, short-term threats on these Christians in the Philippian church. And Paul is telling them, okay, I, I understand that, but zoom out for a second. This is actually evidence of their ultimate destruction and of your salvation. They can hurt you right now in the moment, but they cannot touch you in your salvation in Jesus. He's telling them they have this ultimate security in Jesus. And because they have ultimate security in Jesus, they have nothing to be afraid of in the short term. He's telling them that God has them in whatever they're facing and that God's actually going to judge those who don't believe and who are persecuting his people. And they are going to face destruction and God is in control of that. And God is saying to them that he will save his people. He will not let them be harmed. You know how Jesus puts, puts this in the gospel? He says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Don't fear him. He says, rather fear him who can, can, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. If you fear the Lord and walk with him, you don't have to fear those who can kill the body. Have you ever heard a noise during the night that really rattled you and had you scared? Everything is so amplified in the middle of the night. A few weeks ago during the snowstorm in the middle of the night, I was sure I heard some kind of like knocking or tapping outside. And I was convinced that either an animal or a crazy person was trying to get into my house and somehow they were knocking first in order again, which was very kind of them. Um, but I just kept hearing it over and over again. And my mind is just racing like, what is that? I got to get ready. And I was thinking about like my plan of action, thinking about my friend AJ, how convenient it would have been to have him there in that moment. And so finally I get up and I go and I kind of like, I'm listening to where the sound is. And I open the blinds of my window and all it was, was an icicle that was dripping on the roof right outside of our window over and over again, which I've never heard an icicle outside my house here. But I was really scared at first until I realized that that thing had zero power to actually harm me. Um, Paul is telling the Philippians, hey, don't be afraid. I understand that you're scared of what they're threatening you with, but you realize they have no real power over you. That God's got you. I wonder just in your life, have you ever experienced a time where you were nervous about someone finding out that you were a follower of Jesus, that you were a Christian? And maybe it's not the same kind of persecution opposition that the Philippian church was facing. Uh, maybe it's a work situation where you knew it wouldn't play well to be like the Christian one in the group. And so you sort of held back on talking about your faith a little bit. Or maybe it was a situation at school where you thought, if I tell people I go to church, they're going to make fun of me. 
Or maybe it's like a friend group where faith in Jesus just wouldn't be cool. Maybe it would be seen as being weird. Um, I think we all have moments in our lives where we feel this tension of wondering if we can be confident in our faith in Jesus or if we need to take a step back because we're afraid of what might be said if people know that we're Christians. Paul is saying, don't be afraid. God's got you in that situation. And Jesus actually speaks into that very thing where people make fun of you or ridicule you for following him. This is in the most famous sermon he ever ever preached. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil um, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Um, There is actually blessing in those moments where you feel the tension of people being opposed to you because of your faith in Christ. God has you in that moment. Don't be afraid. Be confident. So the Christian life, it's more unity than division. It's more confidence than fear. Third, the Christian life is more suffering than comfort. Okay, the first two feel better than this one does. Uh, Unity, check. Confidence, check. But suffering? Uh, This one, I think, rattles our expectations the most. Look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. All right, so after... He tells them to not be afraid of their opponents, to remain confident. He says, oh, and suffering is going to be a part of following Jesus. Believing in Jesus means you're going to suffer for his sake. And he holds himself out there again as a model for this. He's done this throughout the letter. Verse 30, he says, hey, look, I've dealt with this. So I know that you can deal with it also. Um, all right, this can be really difficult for us to get our minds around. Um, often when, I, know, I don't know about you, but when I experience suffering, my first thought, it, it could be one of a few things. Maybe it's, I must be doing something wrong here. What am I doing wrong? How can I change that? Or maybe it's, okay, how can I get out of this suffering as quickly as possible? Who do I know that I can call? Who am I networked to that can help me fix this suffering problem? Surely, you know, we know someone that can help, Right? My impulse is to fix it because I don't want this. I want to get back to the comfort. Um, But the idea of suffering as we follow Jesus is unavoidable in Scripture. Some examples. Jesus is the suffering servant. What should followers of the suffering servant expect? Jesus says in Matthew, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. She so says, okay, you want to follow me? Here's what it's going to look like. Deny yourself, suffer. Take up your cross, suffer, and then follow me. Uh, in the book of Acts, as the church is being formed, in the face of persecution, it says the apostles were, quote, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They were celebrating about the fact that they were actually worthy enough to suffer dishonor 
for the name. It was such a part of following Jesus. If you're in, you're going to suffer. Paul tells Timothy in his letter to him to, quote, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Okay, so if the goal of the Christian life is to become more like Jesus, that's what God is doing in all of us. By his Holy Spirit, it's called sanctification, growing us more and more into the image of Christ. And if our lives are increasingly then a reflection of Jesus, then we can expect opposition and suffering like Jesus experienced. And there's so much that we could say about suffering, but I think three things are important to hold together as we think about suffering as a regular part of the Christian life. Some hooks to hang on to in the midst of the really difficult things we all face. The first is this. Suffering is a result of sin in our world. It's not the way it's supposed to be. God did not create the world for suffering. Suffering is here because sin is here. So while there is this paradoxical sense in which we need to get used to it in this life, Jesus said we're going to suffer with him, so get used to it. But also know that it's not the way it's supposed to be. It's here because sin is here. Secondly, also a great mystery, God ultimately uses all of our suffering for our good. He uses all of our suffering for our good. And that is a big mystery. Because I know many of your stories. And I know some of the suffering you have experienced feels indescribable. But what God tells us in His Word is that somehow, in some glorious, mysterious way, all things are going to work out for our good. God is ultimately using all suffering for your good. Think about some of the patterns that He built into our world. Um, Think about if you have a yard and you have grass in your yard. Think about that grass. We all want green grass, right? It has to rain in order for the grass to be green and healthy. Uh, Think about physical exercise. Our muscles have to be broken down if they're going to be rebuilt stronger. Think about a home renovation. That old crumbling house has to be torn down if there's going to be something made new there. There is just something that God has built into the patterns of our world. That he uses the hard things, the breaking down, to make us new again. Third thing about suffering is that one day it's going to be no more. One day suffering is going to be no more. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees that suffering does not have the final word. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's a reality for those who believe. God's using it mysteriously. And there's going to be a day where it is no more. And that helps us get through it right now. All right, think back to my friend AJ and the Secret Service. We had this grand vision of what this would be like for him. We were all wrong, at least initially. Um, Over the course of his 20-year career now, he has ended up doing some really, really cool things. Um, Things that, you know, you might even see in a movie as an example of what he's doing. Um, Go back to how you answered that first question that I asked. What is your expectation for the Christian life? If your answer to that question is, well, I want victory, I want comfort, I want to be close to Jesus without distraction, I don't want to sin, I don't want to be sideways with my brothers and sisters in Christ, I don't want to keep doing the same thing over and over again, I I want to stop doubting, I want to believe. 
Okay, those are all really good visions for the Christian life that are not the reality now, but will one day be the reality. That is actually an accurate expectation. That is where the story is headed. There will be a day where it's all victory and it's all comfort and it's no more sin and no more sadness and no more doubt, no more questioning, no more broken friendships, no more broken relationships, no more broken families. It's only you and Jesus and all of his people all together forever. And it's going to be perfect. That is a right expectation to have. Just not for right now. That's in the life to come. How is that possible? Because Jesus suffered on the cross, it means that our suffering is not meaningless, but it has a hopeful ending. And it means that we really don't have to be afraid of the world because he conquered the world. And it means that we have every resource in him now to have real unity with one another because, he, what, because of what he did on the cross. And Jesus offers himself to you this afternoon. He is the one who suffered on your behalf so that one day you will never suffer again. Won't you receive him by faith? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you.